darlings! Welcome back to Hashtag Lum Squad, a podcast dedicated to exploring the wonderful and wacky world of Rumuko Takahashi's Yurase Yatra. I'm one of your hosts, Lum Ramiyasha. And I am Andrew A.C. Yoshimura. And today we are finally going to be diving into the Yurase Yatra anime. Thanks to our good friends at Discotech and Crunchyroll, the Yurase Yatra films are now available legally streaming, all six of them on Crunchyroll and that's such an exciting occasion obviously the films are also going to be coming out on Blu-ray later this year as well from Discotech but ahead of that they put them all up on streaming so it's finally great to have some legal streaming access to these films for really the first time Beautiful Dreamer of course has been available streaming for a few years now but now finally all of them are and it's great just to have more legal access here as the opera. It is. It's really good that they put them out on streaming. And not only that, it was a bit of a surprise as well. It just kind of popped out of nowhere. We just kind yeah. of got this announcement one day. And, and, and the, you know, to be fair, our little corner, and it's a little corner of the internet, uh, did blow up. And you had a, you saw a lot of people coming out of the woodwork who had heard of Urusei Yatsa or who had seen it previously, you know, quite a long time ago, come out and get really excited about this because they hadn't heard about it or hadn't seen it in quite a while, which was really positive. Absolutely. And I think that the films are a great encapsulation of the appeal and charm of the series, especially this first film, which I think is most true to the spirit of the series. I think so too. And we'll we'll get into that um, a bit later on in the podcast as well, uh, about the, um, the production and our personal feelings about this movie. Uh, I think it's I think it's fantastic myself, uh, but it is um, it has a very interesting sort of history, uh, very rushed production behind it. But what we're going to do first of all today is dive into Urusei Yatsura Only You by giving you a synopsis of the plot. Now we're going to assume that most people listening to this podcast has probably seen it at some point, but we'll give you a bit of a refresher now. Yeah, we're not going to go by a scene-by-scene analysis or discussion of the film. I'm just going to run you down, in general, what the plot of this movie is. Essentially, when they were six, Ataru was friends with an alien princess named Elle, and on the night before she had to leave, they were playing a game of Shadow Tag, and Ataru managed to jump on a shadow. In Elle's homeworld's culture... They have a tradition of whoever jumps on another person's shadow, that is the same as having a marriage proposal or giving a marriage proposal. And so by jumping on her shadow, Ataru is basically proposed to Elle and she asks him if that's okay. He says, yeah, sure. And then she goes off and promises to reunite with him in 11 years. And as it happens, 11 years pass and Elle has sent her messengers to Tomobiki to drop a bunch of wedding invitations to all of Ataru's friends, ahead of informing Ataru himself that, you know, she's going to be picking him up for the marriage. But her messengers end up confronting Ataru, and he is very enthusiastic when he's told about how beautiful Elle is, even though he doesn't quite remember her. And so they promise to pick him up. And that, of course, upsets Lum very much. But luckily, her friends, namely Benton, come to assure her to, hey, like, don't give up on Tar. You gotta fight for him. And so Lum 
comes up with a plan to marry Ataru first before Elkan. So she basically kidnaps Ataru and all her friends and takes them aboard her father's spaceship where they basically browbeat Ataru into marrying Lum. But before anything can progress because they're heading back to the only planet for the wedding, L's forces intercept them and a spy who had snuck on board manages to knock Lum out and steal away Ataru. And basically, she manages to get away with Ataru, as well as kidnapping the main Tomobiki characters as well, Tomobiki high characters of Mendo and Shinobu, Megane, and such. And they head off back to L's planet. Whereas Lum, who tried chasing after her in kind of a damaged spaceship, kind of ends up crashing, and her friends end up crashing too, in another planet. And the entire only planet forces are kind of just defeated by elves. And so on elves planet, Ataru finally reunites with El, even though El herself doesn't recognize Ataru at first and mistakes him for Mendo. She <laughs> thinks Mendo's Ataru. But when she does, when the guts get cleared up, you know, who Ataru is, like she acts very loving to him and she holds her memories of her time with Ataru very fondly the time they spent playing together as kids. And particularly, him jumping on her shadow meant a lot to her. Like, him proposing to her means a lot to her. Because Alice, a princess, is someone who has always been a chooser. Everything is basically given to her. She's basically the one, like, she takes what she wants. But Ataru, in that instance, is the first person who has ever chosen her. And so that's why he means a lot to her. Even so, though... Elle is not necessarily monogamous. She does kind of uh, ask Mendo to meet up later on in the night, and it turns out that Elle keeps a harem of handsome men literally frozen in a giant refrigerator in the underground (laughs) of her castle. And so upon seeing this, Ataru freaks out, and he refuses to marry El anymore, but El refuses to reject his rejection and basically imprisons him until the wedding the next day. Then the next day on the day of the wedding, Lum and her friends basically crash the wedding to rescue Ataru, and in the ensuing conflict, ensuing chase, there is an explosion, and that's causes a spatial time rift back to the past, back to the day Ataru and L had their game of Shadow Tag, in which it is revealed that Ataru never actually managed to step on L's shadow. He was just a hair short of actually stepping on it. Upon realizing that, basically L's entire justification for holding the wedding is put into shambles, and crushed, she agrees to call the wedding off and never wants to see Ataru and Co. again. And so Ataru and Lum leave, but Lum kind of tricks Ataru because he thinks they're just going to go home. Instead, they are taken to the only planet for their own wedding, and Ataru initially seems like he'll go along with it, but of course, at the last second, he says, no way, and runs away, while everyone else chases after him, very angry. 
at his fickleness. <laughs> and that is a nutshell. Is, yeah. Uh, run credits to basically ending the Impa series at the time I, you, and I, which is used very well in the film, I think. But yeah, that's basically the plot of okay. the film in a nutshell. Excellent. Thank you very much. That was a very a, a very good synopsis of the film. A lot quicker than I would have done it, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I, I probably would have kept interjecting with myself, going, oh, but this happens. Oh, but this, and this is so good. <laughs> there are a lot <laughs> it's really of good, good moments in this movie that I did kind of breeze past just to the, hit the main beats of what the plot mm. is. But, you know, there are a lot of yeah. great moments. We can certainly go over those as well. But I think, first of all, we'll... We'll talk about the production a little bit. The production behind this is a little shrouded in mystery. It's so interesting. So I want to credit uh, Ehoba on Twitter, at H-T-G-O-I-W. They are basically someone who is a big fan of Oshi and mainly wants to document basically every book on Oshi and give a summary and information on, like, the information in the book that pertains to, like, learning more about Oshi's career and his thoughts and history and stuff. And so recently they did a review of the Yurisiyatsu producer's diary, basically. It's a diary that Shigekazu Oshai, who is, like, the main producer at Kitty Film and the main person responsible for launching Yurisiyatsu as an anime project, he basically wrote this producer's diary just a few months before the release of Your Serial to the Final Chapter. It came out in December 25th, 1987. And the book chronicles basically the entire production history of Your Seatra, including not just the TV series, but the histories of all the films. And goes into some interesting detail about kind of production conflicts that happened. And especially like his strange relationship with Oshi. Because mm. Oshi was not the best team player with the, no, a lot of the production he's, team. He's legendarily not particularly easy to work with. No, not at all. Not to say that he's not a good person or a nice person or anything like that, but he certainly likes to go with his own vision on certain yeah. things. And that rubbed the producers quite the wrong way, I think it's fair to say. He certainly has an tourist mindset. In his mind, movies have to be the creative vision of the director. And his experience with Only You just hardened that conviction of his, that he should be uncompromising in making the films that he wants to make, telling the story he wants to tell. But essentially, yeah. you know, this book is so interesting. I think separately we can revisit more of the production history of your Seastra as an anime, because there's so much more that I learned recently in doing some history research for this film. But with Only You specifically, the idea of doing the film came from Kasuke Tanaka, who was a chief editor of Shonen Sunday, and basically the first to scout and feature Takashi's work in Sunday. He was basically responsible for having the initial, like, those are not just Aliens pilot being run in Stone and Sunday. But yeah, basically the idea of doing the film came from Kanaka. And then from there, like Ochi, you know, basically chose Tomoko Kamparu as the main writer. And Kamparu is basically, and is basically like a veteran anime writer. And she apparently took a long time to finish the script 
And also complicating the production was that the original storyboard artist and director of the film took an even longer time. And because they weren't working out, uh, Oshii brought on Oshii to basically direct and storyboard the film instead. From there, of course, Oshii and Kampharu got into a lot of conflict over, you know, the contents of the story. Interestingly, yeah. it was Oshi who came up with the idea of having L have this harem of handsome men kept in a refrigerator, basically. And a literal refrigerator as well. A literal refrigerator. Like, it's such a yeah, great which is idea. one of the comedy parts, yeah. Like rather than just have like a, a um a cryogenic kind of futuristic sort of device, it's just literally a giant refrigerator. That's it. It's a great gag, but the concept thematically is also great too, of Elle literally wanting to preserve what can be fickle in terms of romantic relations, in terms of love, just forever. She's kind of a ta- kind of Ataru on steroids. Like kind of takes Ataru's idea of floating to just like the the gigantic next royal level. Yeah. Of- being able to obtain everything she wants and then just freeze it in place. Absolutely. Ataru is more of a fickle person that, like, his attention, his interest in uh, women can be very uh, transient. Like, he will be interested oh, yeah. in one girl one moment, another person the next. Ella's the same way, but she wants to preserve those feelings she has for the men she's attracted to forever basically by freezing them hmm. so even she's not like as willing to let go as ataru she wants to like hold on to things kind of forever hold on to people forever and l not to deviate too far into the character analysis but l is an interesting combination of both ataru and lum's characteristics in that way because lum is a character who is very possessive obsessively so of the person she loves and will do anything to kind of keep him tethered to her. So I think mm. Elle is an interesting character and concept of combining those two characteristics of Lominatari. However, just to get back to the production history, you know, Ochi and Kalamparo, they were not super enthusiastic about Oshi's idea of having Elle having the refrigerator of handsome guys. But Oshii was basically willing to compromise on some ideas Oshii had just to get the film made. And so the film basically had a pretty fast production schedule from there. In Oshii's own words, it took maybe about four to five months to complete from the time he was brought on board. He was basically a pinch hitter for the production. Yeah, look, it, it is, it's, uh, it's important to really state how short of a time four to five months is for any production or any film, let alone animation. Yeah. So this was really, you know, pedal to the metal. They were really, I think a lot of the compromising and the unshiftability of of Oshi's opinions and the way he wants to direct the film were just, we have to go with him because we can't argue with him anymore. Exactly. Like, they just kind of, it was kind of more of a, we give up because we have to get this done. Uh, they probably had a release date planned. Uh, and just so everyone out there knows, uh, the actual release date was February 12th, 1983, mm-hmm. which is about, give or take, kind of 18 months uh, from when, uh, you know, Urusei Yatsura, the anime started in October uh, 1981. Mm-hmm. So 
it's a very rushed production. The fact that they got a film fairly early on, uh, and, you know, this does happen quite a bit in Japan, especially in the 80s, when they just had buckets of money they could throw at things, especially things that they know were already successful or are going to be a success. And it's important to know that Japan at the time, probably about 110 million people, uh, was a, a closed ecosystem, effectively. There weren't like international rights. They weren't going to send this film out so much. It was just, it was made in Japan for Japanese people. And Urusei Yatsura was definitely popular enough to know that this film was going to be made and it was going to be profitable and it was going to be released in cinema. Yeah, they definitely weren't thinking of global distribution rights at this time or focusing on a little market. No. It was just a Japanese market. And this film was financially mm. successful and well-received in the Japanese market. Like, fans really enjoyed the movie. This is Rumiko Takashi's favorite film, reportedly. Like, she was very receptive and enjoyed the film. Like, she did draw promotional art for the film. Like, she's drawn from Which is posters. also important as well. Yeah, because the art you see, the very famous art of uh, Lum with, uh, like, and it's a very cinematic poster. Yeah. With Lum and El and Ataru. Lum has the multicolored hair that she does in the color pages and on the covers of the comics uh, on the yeah. Shonen Sunday. And it, whenever you see that, you know it's actually Takahashi's work. Uh, and that only really happened for this film. And yeah. so. There are a lot of, there's a, a big part of the fandom out there that love to collect anything to do with this movie and this artwork, uh, especially in Japan, because they know that Takahashi did have something of a hand in there. She was connected to the film in a way that she just wasn't with any of the other productions. Interestingly, Rumiko Takashi was initially contacted to write a treatment for the plot of the second film, but she was too busy and couldn't finish it, so they switched writers. And so the production mm. history of Beautiful Dreamer, the second year's outside film, is also very interesting. And oh, like yes. that's another story. More we'll talk about that next one. time. I do think it's worth noting. We will say this, though. Um, we will say that... Because this film was as financially successful and well-received as it was, it gave Oshi the leeway and the clout to do pretty much, not Club Omch, but to do pretty much what he wanted with the second movie, which is why the second movie is such a departure from everything in the first movie and the anime series up until that point, pretty much. Interestingly, that's not entirely true. If Ochi had his way, if the producers had their way more, then Beautiful Dreamer, as it came out, would not have been what it was. Uh, basically, no, exactly. Oshi learned from this experience working on this film that he could basically take a mile uh, in negotiations if he made these changes so close to the deadline that they couldn't ask him to fix it. So basically, that's he exactly manipulated yeah. the entire production of Beautiful Dreamer just so that the producers, just so that OGI or even like other members of the production staff couldn't do anything to like refuse his creative vision. They just had to go along with it so the film came out. They literally had no choice because when you say you're going to release something, you know, this was any time back in the 80s, not just Japan. 
you pretty much had to stick to that production date because you had promotional materials, you had schedules, you had cinemas who basically, you know, were going to book this film in and show it for a certain amount of sessions at certain times of day. Uh, and you have to stick to that. You know, there's not a lot of leeway, no matter how popular uh, your film series is, you know, it's got to kind of adhere to a schedule. And the schedule of uh, these films were tight else. because your Sigatra films pretty reliably came out in the early winter of pretty much every year following 1983. Beautiful Dreamer would also come out in February 1984. And the following films would come out in the subsequent years, basically around that same time. They skipped 1987, but the final chapter also came out in early 1988. So they really mm. stuck to basically a yearly schedule for those first four films alongside doing the TV series at the same time. So it was tight production to have like, oh, she is working on the films and the show. The entire production staff really are working on the films and show like they have to balance doing both. So it's very tight these schedules in terms of like what they have to produce and the time they have yeah and it's it is interesting uh when you see the stylistic differences between all of the films and there's actually quite a big stylistic difference between the first film and the second film despite the fact that they were both directed by oshi yeah i do want to point out though that i think that we should definitely talk about oshi's thoughts on this film because yeah, okay. Oshi let's, was not happy. Now, then. Yeah, Oshi was not happy no, with this film. This is not no. the kind of film he wanted to make. He doesn't even think of this as a film. In Oshi's own words, like he just thinks of this as like an extended episode of the show and not a real movie. <laughs> like he does not see this as a real movie because, you know, in his philosophy, like movies, you know, they are about like certain themes and about societies. They have to look to the future. They have to have conclusions. And he feels like this was just an extended episodic adventure of the show. It wasn't like this grand narrative that had a like tight kind of thematic focus or like came to a conclusion for the world in the way that he likes. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of obvious, like looking at this film in the context of Oshi's oeuvre, that this film does not engage in the kind of ideas that Oshi is really interested in, in terms of these philosophical ideas about exploring the abstraction between reality and fantasy and characters losing touch with what is real and who their sense of selves are, not to mention just kind of societal issues of dealing with increasingly like modernized and militaristic world. So like this film is more of just what Eurasia After is. It's like a fun sci-fi romantic comedy adventure romp. And it's a great storyline for that, but you know, this is not the kind of storyline Oshi himself uh, particularly enjoys. No, and I think that's interesting because I agree with everything that Oshi says there. He says that it is just basically an extended episode on a slightly grander scale. And yeah. we can talk about the, the animation a little bit later on and, and how that is actually different from the TV series and the music and everything like that. He calls it a However, fan movie, an event movie, which I would also agree with. Yeah. I don't think that makes it any less of a movie, but more importantly, it's what the fans wanted yeah. at the time. 
if if you were a fan of Urusei Yatsura and you were going to the movies in 1983 to see Lum, then this is kind of exactly what you wanted to see. And, you know, there aren't really any, like, strong connotations to militarization or the outside world or anything like that, or, or losing a sense of identity, but people weren't necessarily looking for that. And I think one of the reasons this was so well received is because it was like a fan event and it was just a movie that was, you know, on a slightly grander scale. Uh, and, you know, the next movie didn't do as well, although had a much longer lasting legacy. Absolutely. Cinematically speaking. Yeah, this definitely was, you know, a great movie for fans because, you know, they work in so many references series, so many characters show up and make cameos. This is a true ensemble film, the likes of which really none of the other films even rival, even Final Chapter doesn't rival, like, how many references to the series are in this film that longtime fans would find quite fun and rewarding. However, it's understandable Oshi would not, you know, care about that because Oshi famously is not really a fan of Yurisiatsura. Oshi <laughs> has been on record saying that he has never was able to come to really love Rumiko Taki's characters. He was not really interested in Yurisiatsura as a series when he took on the project of the anime. Like he always only saw it as kind of like a opportunity to develop his career and as a playground to explore his own ideas. And so yeah. when it came to this idea of entertaining the fans like oh she did learn from only you like okay so this is a movie that was entertaining for the audience but what i want to do and what i think a real movie is is like you know telling a story that has kind of these ideas that the director wants to express and it doesn't matter if the audience is necessarily entertained and they don't even have to understand it. They just need to react to it in some way. It just needs to make them feel something. And so even if, like, you know, you make a crowd-pleasing movie, Oshi doesn't see, like, that really as a real movie. A real movie is something that has a little more taut or, like, Depth. has more of an expression mm. of like, creative intent, artistic intent behind it. Even though Oshi himself only really, really sees himself as, like, a entertainment director, he doesn't he doesn't see himself so much as, like, an auteur, as, like, a, like a deep artist, but his idea of entertainment is something that is, like, something uh, still, like, an idea that one person, that him as a director is trying to get across to his audience. Yeah, he really wants to make you think about things, even if you don't understand what, mm -hmm. you are, what you are watching. He wants you to think about it. And that really comes across in, it does come across a lot in, in Beautiful Dreamer, yeah. but it comes across a lot more in Pat Labor, the movie, yeah. and um, especially in Ghost in the Shell as well, which is um, narratively formed a little bit better, I would say, than um, a lot of his other films I in terms so. of what, you know, in what you want, what he wants you to think about in terms of identity and being human. Yeah. Those worlds also fit Oshi's sensibilities better in terms of, again, yeah. kind of having some more militaristic themes and trappings in terms of the setting, but yeah, and also exploring kind of the relationship between humanity and technology, which is something he's so fascinated by. 
Now, one of the interesting things that Oshi has said um, over the years is that he really wanted to bring a little bit more masculinity to the the world of Ursa Yatsura uh, in Rumiko Takahashi's characters, which I always found quite interesting. I don't think he meant that in a misogynistic way. I do wonder. I feel like Oshi is not necessarily sexist, but he does fall into a gender essentialist mindset. Because his idea is that men and women can't fundamentally understand their worldviews and perspectives. Like, they're fundamentally Mm. different. And that also goes into some biological deterministic stuff that I am not a fan of. I can sort of forgive Oshi just a smidgen just because he's an older person, but... Uh, there are some interviews I've read where he's talked about these ideas that make me a little uncomfortable because uncomfortable, yeah. yeah they, it's a very old-fashioned, outdated way of thinking of like that men live in a different world from women and they fundamentally can't understand each other. So, in terms of adapting Yatsura, he always felt this disconnect with Yurzyatsura's Rumukodagashi wrote it because he saw Yurzyatsura as written by Rumukodagashi as like a, you know a woman's perspective in the story like has a worldview of women and then like you know he as a man is like okay well you know i'm gonna just approach this story from like you know what i as a man want to see you know base the series on like a man's wishes because i can't think of any other way to think about this so it's like a very lack of kind of ability to empathize or like get into the heads of uh women or like a woman's perspective which i find yeah i think he he does lack a certain amount of empathy yeah to what he doesn't understand he doesn't really try to understand Mm -hmm. and it's good that there was a production team here that actually did manage to pull him back Sometimes yeah. as well. I mean, it's worth noting that Kanparu, who, you know, was the screenwriter for this film, she was uh, apparently good friends with Ruka Takahashi. So, you know, mm. and also, you know, as a female writer, but also, you know, as someone who knows Takahashi, she probably could get across a story that was more in line with the series and more in line with something Takahashi would write. And I feel that does come across here. I think there is mm. a different difference between, like, the story as written collaboratively with uh, Kanparu and Oshi with only you and a difference with, you know, Beautiful Dreamer, which is just all Oshi, essentially. He basically Mm. wrote everything everyone else wrote to make his own story. (laughs) So let's move on from Oshi now and talk about the animation itself, which um, it's interesting because it is definitely better uh, in terms of quality than the anime series itself, which you would expect. But it's not quite as... Um, the style isn't quite as nailed down as it, as it gets further on into the movies. It is definitely very reminiscent of the TV series in its style, but it does play with the animation a bit. It does have grander shots, bigger cells, uh, and, they, and they do, especially with at the beginning of the film with the shadow tag, yeah. Seem to have a lot of fun with that style of animation where they just only use just the shadows to emphasize the fact that they are playing shadow tag. That was such a cleverly and beautifully directed sequence of just these, mm. you know, a really vibrant red evening background 
the black silhouettes of L and Ataru running across it, and of course the shadows across like a white ground. Like it, it is so stunning a sequence. It's very, very cleverly directed to get across like this idea. Not only just like this, you know, it literally like we are seeing these characters as silhouettes playing, you know, shadow tag. Like these are shadows uh, playing this game of shadow tag, but. Uh, thematically, this represents this idea of kind of like this abstract fantasy of Els and her memory of like what happened back in her past of Ataru playing with her. And I think it's a great contrast seeing this opening sequence with the flashback slash time travel sequence later on the film where we see the characters as they were actually and playing this game. Mm. And I think that's just a clever juxtaposition to get across this idea, which I do think is very aligned with what Oshi is interested in, of this idea between, uh, uh, this contrast between fantasy and reality. Yeah, and that does come across well there, especially exploring, like, your childhood memories and your idealized childhood uh, sense of the world. Uh, and then revisiting that later on, and you find out that Ataru forgot about this and also kind of cheated as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he didn't cheat. I think he, I think the idea was with little Ataru, the younger Ataru, is that he just got overly excited. And so he thought he jumped on El Shadow, but he hadn't. He was just a hair short. So I yeah, don't think I, I always wonder about that. Like, I always wonder, like, did he just say he caught it because he just wanted to win? Uh, and, you know, because that's kind of an Ataru thing as well. Or did he just legitimately think that he caught the shadow and didn't? Uh, and Ataru, older Ataru kind of beats up on his younger self there a bit as well, which is kind of funny. Yeah. It is funny. Like, it's Ataru wants to push off the blame off himself in the present to his past self. So he literally, like, yeah. beats him up and treats him <laughs> like. And, and the irony. The irony there is that if you beat your younger self, it's only your future self who's going to hurt. Uh-huh. We saw that, <laughs> or we will see that with Mendo. <laughs> At this point, that episode has not aired yet. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I guess also worth noting that this came out between episodes 58 and 59 in the series, like to just talk about timeline for a little bit. Uh, and also, though, in continuity-wise, this had to have taken place before episode 57 because uh, Mr. Invader, Mom's dad, mentions that he had not seen Atari since the matchmaking party, which was episode 22. And yes. it has to take place after episode 45 because that was the episode where Lum had her class reunion and she was upset if, like, her friends were, you know, not wanting to see her. Or abandoning her, and she probably wouldn't feel that strongly if she had just seen her, them at her wedding and they helped her rescue her would-be husband. So, I would say this has to take place, yeah, between 45 and It raises an interesting question, uh, which is, is it canon? And I, of all the films, other than, like, the fifth film, which is... You know, there is a, there's a bit of a debate about that one as well. It does really? happen, but, you know, like... What is canon in Urusei Yatsara anyway? But of all the films, this one is the most canon. And I think someone did come out and say it is canon in terms of the animation, in terms of uh, the series itself. Because they do reference the series in this. Yeah. Um, it's the most reflective of the series. And there are a few little nods to L 
in the series, although it's not mentioned directly, you actually see like a few graphic novels uh, in Ataru's room with L on the cover and stuff like that, which was like a little Easter egg to the movie, I think. Definitely. I mean, it's kind of weird that Ataru would have graphic novels with L on the cover, unless like he just got them from Elle's Planet <laughs> and she's like a comic character there. Like they made comics about her. But yeah, mm. I mean, I think because Takashi also did really like this movie and gave it her blessing that you can fit this into the continuity if you want to, because there's nothing that necessarily mm. contradicts the continuity in this film before or after. So you can easily no. squeeze it in. And I think that also feeds into Oshi's complaint that this has felt like episodic and inconsequential because it doesn't offer yeah, like and a conclusion. To be fair, thing. like most of the series is inconsequential. Like yeah, it is kind true. of like there is a pretty hard reset between, you know, episodes when they're stuck, you know, a million years in the past in the Jurassic era or you know, you know, Orotaru is very badly hurt or something like that, and everything just kind of switches back to normal the next episode. So there's not a lot of canon, but there are characters who are introduced and there are story beats that do happen, which are mentioned later on. And while this doesn't necessarily happen with this film, I think it is, it, it, it fits in very neatly uh, yeah. with the continuity and the fact that events of this series are mentioned in the movie itself, I think is a pretty good indicator as well. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking about this when we were watching it. We had a bit of a Lum Squad event where we we watched this. And it's important to note that we watched the, I'm pretty sure it was the Animego version that we watched, if I was remembering correctly. Well, back in the day, uh, that would be this. I think the version on Crunchyroll must be the new discotheque sets. It has to be, I would imagine. Um, yeah, because... We were watching the Animego one. It's a little bit hard for me to tell sometimes because I don't really watch the subtitles so much mm. uh, anymore because I don't really need to, especially for this film, which I've seen many, many times. And I don't know, like, I what really occurred to me is that if the series ended with this movie, it would still be a solid ending. It would be as solid as the final chapter, if not even oh, a little bit more I solid. I disagree with that. Like, this series has more references and returning characters, but in terms of resolving character arcs, like, the final chapter is a much stronger, much more emotional ending. It is a more complete ending than this film it is. It is, yeah, it's but like I guess I'm talking about, like, if, if everything came to a hard stop with the anime right there, I'm not talking about the manga or anything like okay. that, but if Urusei Yatsara stopped at like episode 60 and then they just had this movie as the conclusion because the anime series wasn't that popular, I still would have seen this movie as going out on a bang, I think, in terms of like, it's, you know, the end of the series and, you know, the, the manga keeps going. That's just something that, a little something that occurred to me and, you know, that's just my opinion um, of where if you watch the anime series up to that point and then see that movie, and just in theory that if it all ended there, that wouldn't have been the worst way to go out. I, I would agree with that. It is interesting you think about, you know, if your character had ended at this time, this would have been a good conclusion to the anime run. Because apparently there were rumors at this time in 1983 of, was the anime going to be coming to an end? But then around this time of the movie, like they announced, no, it's going to continue for a second season. So that is kind yeah. of an interesting thing that people were thinking about at the time. It's also 
worth noting that I think this movie did spark kind of a second renaissance in the popularity of Yuri Astra as a franchise. And so, you know, I think that, you know, propelled the anime to continue as a long running project and of course led to the yearly movies for the next couple of years. So Yeah. Yeah. And it is important to note that Urusei Atari is unique amongst its peers at the time in the fact that it was a very long running show. Mm-hmm. Um, now there were other long running shows as well, um, especially when you consider uh, Lupin the Third. Oh yeah, I mean Lupin. The but there were a lot that just got like one season or two seasons or yeah. twenty four episodes, and then maybe a movie, and that was it. And some of them had very hard conclusions at the end of them. Some of them just they just ended with the final episode. They they weren't like a a gag of the week kind of thing that could keep going. Uh, so I think. You know, we're very fortunate to be able to have 195 episodes of Urusei Yatsura plus the OVAs plus six movies. Yeah, I think Urusei Yatsura was definitely one of the longest anime at the time it ended. Obviously, mm. it still, at that time, did not have a candle on Sazai-san, which had been running since 69. <laughs> Obviously, it would be uh, eclipsed by hundreds of episodes, but it definitely was Thousands. a longer-running episode. <laughs> yeah, longer-running yeah. series. But there, you, you have to also remember that um, anime, we just kind of, in the West, we think of anime as one giant genre. Whereas when you live in Japan, there are many different genres within anime itself. You know, there's sci-fi anime, there's uh, there's gag anime, there's romantic anime, romantic comedy anime. And then there's the, um, there's the, there's the kind of, um, the kind of chibi maruko-chan that's just kind of, watched by the entire family that's kind of very banal which is why a lot of those sorts of uh series just keep going and going and going every sunday night at um you know at six o'clock and then six thirty. i think banal is a harsh uh, word for marco <laughs> i think it's a charming show you know i i enjoy watching look, it oh look it it is charming, and I used to watch it every week. But it, it it wasn't something that you you kind of turn up to, and you needed to really engage with. I suppose is what I want to say. Like you can, yeah. And Sazai-san as well. You can just kind of shut your brain off and just watch it. Yeah, it's just a charming family show. I think I yeah. would call it akin to like, hey, you want to tune into SpongeBob? You know, it's still on after twenty yeah. years. It, it's still reliably enjoyable. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I still, I still watch, you know, very old episodes of The Simpsons from the first ten seasons, mm-hmm. and I still laugh at it. But I don't also have to engage my brain in any particular way. Yeah, it's like comfort yeah. food because, like, you've seen the show so many times. I mean, heck, I still watch New Simpsons, <laughs> and you know, it's just a enjoyable show to watch because I'm just so familiar and comfortable with those characters, even if the yeah. stories aren't always the best necessarily. Mm. And even, like, they don't repeat, like, uh, Chibi Marako's uh, Chan either. No, it's not like they remake episodes. Like, there are a lot of modern Chibi Marako episodes just remake the older episodes. And, like, you know, personally, oh, yeah. I like a lot of the older ones better. Sometimes they do a new episode yeah. and they don't realize that they've done the exact same story five no, years ago because new writers they- have come on. They literally just remake the episode they've made before. They must be doing it intentionally because these stories I don't know. are like in the same order that they were before in the early days. Like I remember I was 
watching the episode where it seems like Marco Chan's parents are going to get divorced, like the remake of that. It was paired with oh, like okay. a remake mm. of the episode where she wanted to find like a new place to sleep and like was testing out all these different areas of sleep, like a closet or like a having a futon <laughs> in the hallway or whatever. And these were like originally these were like half hour episodes and then they remade them as like a two 11 minute episodes in the same half hour. And I was like, I yeah. like the older, more expanded versions best person. It's interesting to note that Chibi Maruko-chan was like a normal sort of half-hour anime based off a lot of the original stories, uh, and then that series ended, and then it started up again mm-hmm. a few years later, and then just never stopped. It just kept going and going and going and going. I think there's got to be like I, I just used Chibi Maruko-san, uh, Maruko-chan as an example because yeah. that is just an anime that I have seen a lot of. And yeah. I think that they don't recycle them. I think they do recycle them on purpose sometimes, but I think they've just done so many episodes that sometimes they just rewrite the same episode without knowing or seeing the original. (laughs) Because there's only so many stories you can tell, really. Anyway, we're getting way off course, (laughs) but it is interesting to note about the different genres uh, in anime and how much anime is kind of a part of the fabric of Japan. Mm. Um, even if you don't watch it that much or, you know, even like uh, my my wife's uh, 88-year-old grandfather, he'd be 89 soon, I think, oh. he knows all of these characters. He He's not necessarily a fan, but he doesn't hate it. It's just kind of on television and it's on when we're eating dinner or something like that. And he'll just kind of like, you know, turn and watch it and maybe have a chuckle every now and again. Yeah, it's part of the popular culture. I mean, it is really like hmm. here in America, like everyone's going to know the Mickey Mouse or the Looney Tunes or, you know, the Goldwood Television series. You know, a lot of people are going to know the Simpsons and Family Guy and SpongeBob and characters like those, even if they don't watch them regularly because they're just so ridiculous in popular culture. They're very recognizable. Yeah, and and it goes back uh, a very long way as well it goes right back to rocky and bullwinkle and the yeah. flintstones like mm-hmm. the flintstones was you know effectively just a sitcom that was animated based pretty much <laughs> off the honeymooners yeah <laughs> so it it does go back quite a way and people you know uh in western society will often think you know animation is for children but that kind of way of thinking is starting to die out now i think uh, mm. and finally uh, in my opinion, it's taken a while, but it's become a lot more acceptable, and especially Japanese animation is as well. But in Japan, it's just always been there, you know, and people who grew up during the Showa era will always kind of go, oh, yeah, I love Lupin. Like, Lupin's my favorite, you know, and... Yeah, I mean, you know, they'll, Lupin, they'll, they'll still well, have... They, well, they get into a deep conversation about, oh, I like the green jacket the best. No, the red jacket. No, newer blue jacket's the best. And I think most people will be just like, uh, I like Lupin. You know, just loop in. I don't yeah. care about the jacket. I did know a person um, who used to have what he called a lucky tie, and he it was like a bright yellow tie that Lupin used to wear. Oh, and this guy was this guy would have been in his fifties uh, back in the two thousands. He loved Lupin growing up, and whenever he had an important board meeting or like an important interview, he always wore his lucky yellow tie because it always reminded Aww. him of the confidence of Lupin. That's a great. Message, yeah, that's a great, you know, story, like, of how, you know, again, 
you can be inspired and motivated by the fiction you consume. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what inspired this podcast, yeah. effectively, is, <laughs> is our love for a series. Mm-hmm. Um, and, look, I'll just also touch on uh, just the last thing I want to mention about the animation is that it is a bit neater. The style, there is a bit more style there in Only You. Uh, I am fortunate enough to own some of the cells ah. from Only You. I've had a few over the years. I've donated a couple of them. One of my favorite ones is Ataru, uh, who is chained up mm. in the dungeon with Ten. Now, Ten's not in this cell, but the interesting thing about this cell is that it is it is bigger than your average cell, but not only that, it is what we call a tilt cell. which means that it is in portrait mode rather than landscape. So it was obviously drawn and made so the camera could effectively pull tilt up on Ataru while he's chained up. Um, So it's like a full body uh, of Ataru just looking like really forlorn uh, and like just kind of half dead. Uh, And it's it's a really kind of stylized, uh, interesting cell to have. And the other one I have, uh, which uh, which is of note, is uh, one of, at the beginning of the film, when you've got the pink staircase of light comes yeah. down and basically picks up a Tyru, and Lum is floating next to them. Now, Lum and Ataru are more or less meant to be static. Lum will, of course, sort of go up and down a little bit, uh, you know, as her floating animation. What's interesting about this is that obviously their faces, um, the animation on their faces change. So there's just a cell over the top, which is of Ataru's mouth mm. and his eyes. And of course they're going to, they're going to use different cells to make him talk. But what's interesting about this cell is that they're all out of alignment. So usually you have holes at the top of this cell of all cells, and that's how you kind of keep them all in alignment. But his eyes and mouth and nose are slightly out of alignment, as in they kind of, it looks like it's, they accidentally, when they were animating it, it fell off one of the hooks that held it in place. But on that same cell, they've also drawn uh, a bit of uh, lum as well. Mm. And they couldn't fix it up, so they just kept (laughs) it like that. Wow. Because it was so rushed, they couldn't afford to go back and do it again. So there's this, and it doesn't show up because, you know, it's, it was photographed exactly how it was. But I think that just shows how rushed the production was when they were only trying to use a limited number of cells, even with facial expressions. And I know it's from that scene because two of the cells has stuck to each other because when you use multiple cells and they're stuck together for a long time, of course, the paint is going to dry or it's going to, you know, uh, there's going to be some sort of adhesive effect between the cells. So I can't separate those cells anymore, despite the fact that they're out of alignment. <laughs> wow. That's really funny and interesting. I think it's kind of amazing that this movie looks as good as it does in the animation. It's as high quality as it is, despite the rush mm. production. I think it's a it's a it's a stellar effort given the amount of time that they had to do this. Yeah, no, I think this movie looks really good in a lot of places, and the character animation is really attentive. Like, there's a lot of great mm. details in the character acting 
that I super appreciate. A lot of really great flourishes to like make sure the characters feel like they have weight and that they're very reactive to things. It's not just pose to pose. Like there is a lot of fluid movements here. Like they did a really great job of time to give it. There's only a couple bits of maybe some wonkiness or some staticness. I did see that when this movie came out originally, like some Japanese fans did criticize some of the animation inconsistencies. However, in general, I think that this film looks really good. And especially in a lot of scenes that really count, like the opening scene of the Game of Tag and Shilouettes, uh, like uh, the big battle scenes when L's forces are fighting the Oni forces. And of course, the climax of the wedding crash. Mm, the wedding, the there are some really good explosions there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then the pretty much the emotional climax of the movie with like the game of tag in the past, like revisiting Ataru and Al playing that game of tag in the past. That looks really beautiful. Uh, oh, mm. the scene, honestly, that scene you were talking about with Ataru and Ten in the dungeon, that has some really great character acting too on both Ten and Ataru's parts. Like, yes. that is a really, really great scene. I really like it. It's the uh, backgrounds, too. There are some really great backgrounds, really great color choices. There are some wonderful backgrounds. Uh, I've never been able to get my hands on any of the backgrounds to this movie, mm-hmm. and I, I'm, I'm sure someone is just has a whole stack of them is hoarding them somewhere, because a lot of them are very beautiful, yeah. especially on the planet Butter. Uh-huh. That's, Which is yeah. a, such a different location and has such a different style to everything on Earth or on Iboshi or on the spaceship as well. Yeah, the architecture is super interesting. Like, Elle's, like, rose, like, kind of stone-colored spaceship is always very striking. Like, the introduction scene where Elle's forces a spaceship is, like, a descending on Hongobiki, and then when it departs and we see, like, the same ship, like, it's so, so interesting. It's, like, the design of it is so unique and yeah like Elle's capital uh, on Bara mm. like that is also like a really really interesting location and it we really need to talk about the references in this film because yeah. it, it, it's re- very self-referential as well because you see it's it's very referential to the series and the way that Ataru and Lum meet because it starts out with a game of tag yeah and then the movie the main plot of the movie starts with a massive spaceship coming down over Tomobiki just like it did in the episode of the first, yeah, uh, in the first episode of the series, reflection of the beginning of the series, as well as mm. the relationship of Lum and Ataru. It is like kind of reflecting upon that relationship, and like it's basically a mirror of that. Hmm. And it it does ask the the very interesting question of like, like is Lum that special? And by the end of the, the movie, you think, oh, no, no, she is definitely, like, Ataru and, and Lum were meant to be together. But at first it was like, well, there was this other game of tag when Ataru was even younger, and Ataru seems to be very into this girl. And Lum, you know, has to fight. You know, she's really got, actually got to put up a fight for Ataru. Yeah. And at the end, L gives up and doesn't want to see Ataru or Lum or any of those guys ever again. And, like, they go their separate ways. It's a definitely a heartbreaking decision for her, though. I think it's more because yeah. she can't really take the fact that what she had believed in for over a decade and that thing that gave her, like, so much happiness that she had been chosen, like, by someone who loves her 
that turning out not to be true really just breaks her heart. And so that's why she doesn't want to see them again. It's not because she hates them, Atari suddenly. It's just that, like, she she really just doesn't know what to do anymore. So just she falls back into what she thinks is reliable, which is, like, all those, like, all those men that she had frozen who are head over heels for her and just, like, freezing them all up again. Because, you know, that love that she thought would bring eternal is unfortunately just another fleeting thing. So she might as well hold on to all these other, you know, lovers she already had in her grasp. Yeah. And it is important to note that, um, like, she did have genuine feelings for Atari. And that's what makes this character interesting, is that it wasn't just like, you know, two parents, two alien parents saying, okay, you're going to marry this guy because of a game of tag. It's like she... She felt and she carried Ataru in her heart for all those years, despite yeah. the fact that she misidentifies him at first. Honestly, she has <laughs> which a is another great side gag connection and re- uh, relationship to Ataru than Lum had with Ataru initially. His Lum just decides to marry Ataru over a misunderstanding of him yeah. proposing to Shinobu, but with L, like again, she has like a character rooted, motivated reason. Of, like, she had felt yeah. like, you know, she was in a position where she chose everything, but, like, Ataru was a person who chose her, and that's why he was special to her. And it's important to note that no matter what happened with, with Lum or Lum's original motivations, Lum fights for Ataru here. Mm-hmm. Lum fights for her relationship with Ataru and is willing to do just about anything to get Ataru back and to essentially rescue him. That's true. Which is what is happening at the end of the at the end of the movie. That is true. And if Lum was in Elle's position with the same backstory and everything, you would get the sense that Lum would not give up on Ataru even after this revelation. And that is a critical contrast yeah. between her and Elle and their convictions in love. And I think it's a good point on like criticizing like Elle's kind of, you know flippancy towards love or like her or the way she treats love is like something that she'll preserve but she doesn't feel like a deep connection to except for this one instance i think like a great quote comes from when shinobu is risking mendo from getting frozen and she criticizes Elle and she says you know don't make light of the relationship between men and women like love don't mix up the hot blood of passion men and women with frozen tuna like, I think yeah. that's a great... It's a good quote. Yeah, because Elle just, like, kind of <laughs> consumes love. Like, she, I uh, like her comments towards Mendo, like, are, like, very much like, oh, you're a good specimen of a handsome man. Mm. Like, he does kind of commodify him for his looks. And then, like, like, okay, I'll preserve you as a good specimen, an example of my love or my romantic interest. Or rather, I guess, the love that these suitors feel for her because it seems very much like she is more interested in the fact that they have feelings for her than she has like any strong feelings for them. Which is also a good contrast mm. between like the fact that she feels very strongly for Ataru, but Ataru only feels like kind of fickle in terms of his interest in her. But yeah. And like Ataru's already scheming in the way that Ataru does. Yeah. That, oh, hang on. She's a princess. So, you know, if I marry her, you know, I will be like king of this place, which yeah. means I can have my own harem too, mm-hmm. effectively. And, until he realizes that, um, 
not only has Elle already kind of done that, but she's taking it to the nth degree. Yeah, Megane points that out, is that, like, he's way, she is way ahead of Ataru when it comes to, like, creating a harem. Although, yeah. Yeah, also, obviously, like, her idea of, like, having a harem is so much different from Ataru's, because, like, she doesn't, she just wants to preserve them as, like, a collection to look at, rather than, like, people to interact with, like Ataru would want. Yeah, and and that is, that is an interesting distinction there because Ataru is in it for the game. Mm-hmm. You know, he likes he likes flirting, he likes interacting, whereas she is just basically a collector. Yeah, that is such a. Um, good we contrast. should also talk about the the references to external media as well. Um, mm. Oshi does kind of get his way a little bit here uh, in terms of the the, the militaristic. Yeah. Fighting uh, when uh, the Oni forces go against um, El's forces. Yeah, there's a lot of parodies of Leiji Masamoto type works in that sequence. Particularly, there is a character that resembles Harlock. I think kind of a character that resembles the captain in Yamato. You know, so mm. yeah, I think he he definitely works in all those references there. Yeah, Harlock was one that I only discovered fairly recently. I don't think when the first time I watched this, I I did I didn't understand that reference, and apparently <laughs> there's also some Gundam references in there yeah. as well. Which I don't quite understand. I've always been afraid of getting into Gundam oh. because I'm afraid I might really get into Gundam. <laughs> yeah, it's such a vast franchise, but I do recommend the original series and then pretty much everything related to that original series timeline. Oh, the UC one. Yeah. yeah. I can't, I just, I'm just so afraid that I'll get into it like really super hardcore and then just not be able to stop for years and years and years. <laughs> Uh, but th- that sequence is good. Um, the interaction between the characters in this movie I really enjoy as well. Yeah. Especially anything to do with Lum's father, I just absolutely adore. Uh, yeah. You kind of forget that he is kind of the head of a planet of, you know, Only. of people who go and conquer other planets. Yeah. Um, because... His disposition changes quite a bit depending on the situation. Yeah, he's generally pretty genial, but he gets aggressive when he's not getting his way. I think that's best yeah. exemplified in the scene where Lum's parents, Atari's parents, and them are like kind of having conversation about getting Atari to marry Lum. And, you know, he's acting very nice to him first, but then when it comes time to press him into like marrying Lum and saying that he'll be committed to marry Lum, like he does you know, very briskly say, you will marry my daughter, right? You know, very... You will do the right thing. Threateningly. And, you know, he and, you know, the rest of the parents are, like, scowling at him to, like, (laughs) you know, say that he will. So that's a good moment. I really... I love this scene so much, yeah. like with all of the parents interacting, because you've never seen them kind of interact on that that kind of Mm. higher level before. Of course, he does come and stay with them. I'm not sure whether that uh, is uh, pre or post. No, this is that uh, was pre. That, that was movie. episode 57, and this movie should okay has to take place continue as for that. A couple of episodes later, yeah, mm-hmm. and and that is I just love the interaction and like even mum uh, Lum's mum is kind of in there and you know yeah and they and they're kind of interacting despite the fact that she can't really speak any Japanese yeah and. They're just having, like, a nice dinner party, and Lum is just, like... Because um, I I should back up a little bit here and say, this is what happens traditionally in Japan before two people get married. 
Mm. So if the man proposes to the woman, essentially what will happen is um, that the parents will meet and agree to the union. And it is kind of a formal thing, but at the same time, there will be sake, alcohol, and it will kind of devolve a little bit. Um, but it, it it is a tradition that still is adhered to to this day, even if it is more casual. And that is what's happening here. It is like a formal Japanese-style meeting to say, to endorse uh, the union and the marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in my own, uh, even in my own marriage to a um, a Japanese person, uh, this still happened. Mm. Uh, my dad went and saw uh, Maria's parents, um, despite the fact that he couldn't speak Japanese and they couldn't speak English. Oh. And and this was like a day before the wedding. Uh, and it was just basically a formality. They exchanged gifts and, and like, you know, pleasantries and conversation and had a little bit of sake and stuff like that. Uh, and my wife translated, the funny thing about this was that I am deathly allergic to cats, of which their house had many at the time. Oh, my gosh. Um, so during this union of, like, the two people meeting and the wedding being the next day, I couldn't take part in this. And it was snowing, so I was just wandering around in the snow in Guma, hoping that all of this was going really well while they were inside and being nice and warm and, like, having drinking sake. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. That's kind of like a real culture cap, too, though, like in this scene in the film, (laughs) because, yeah, like, Mom's mom can't speak Oni, and uh, her parents can't speak Oni, or rather, Mom's mom can't speak English, or... Whatever mm. language you're watching this film in Japanese. And, yeah, yeah it, it gets a little bit confusing with subtitles. Mm. Uh, but also, like, uh, they do offer them, like, a good public service position as well. Yeah. To One of my a- favorite- Atari's dad, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Which is basically like kind of like one of like getting like a job and a and like a, a position in the public service is like one of the the most more respectable and stable things you can get in Japan as well. So it's also kind of a, a status symbol. Mm-hmm. So they're also getting something out of this union as well. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite moments in this meeting scene is like you know while like uh, Ataru's mom is like lecturing Ataru about like committing to Mary Lam, like Atari's ad is like indulging in the banquet spread and he's like, you know, taking more on his in his bowl on his plate and then like at some point like Atari's mom just like slaps his hand from take going in for more <laughs> and he kind of like whimpers. It's just such a great yeah, like, little character moment that I really enjoyed. There are a, a, a great lot of little flourishes like that. Especially um when Lum and Ataru exchange rings and Lum is just like genuinely kind of so happy and yet kind of like her her cheeks are very flushed and she's quite red in the face and she's really enjoying this like romantic moment that they're having despite the fact that she knows that <laughs> she's very quickly caught on to the fact that Ataru has just kind of wimpily said yeah I'll do it because I don't really have a choice. Uh, and she wants to really enjoy this romantic moment, and Ataru is just sitting there plotting his escape. And he pretty he he gets kidnapped, uh, but it's a willing he gets willingly kidnapped, effectively. <laughs> and I, I just I do love the the just the the juxtaposition between the two characters of like 
of Ataru and Lum in that scene, and I do feel bad for Ataru, who's railroaded into be into marrying Lum here. Like yeah. it's not his choice. He looks so defeated. Like he knows. Yeah, he it's can't just refuse. It's just not the Ataru that you want to see. Like the the Ataru isn't like Ataru as a his normal self is not a good person, and he's not meant to be. But at the same time, you don't want him to be defeated. You don't want him to be railroaded into something he doesn't want to do. No matter how much you, you know, you want Lum and Ataru to get together, it's got to be consensual. And Ataru was certainly not consenting to this union. Yeah, I mean, it is disheartening to see, like, how dejected he is as being forced into something like he doesn't want to do. Like, you know, you do want, ideally, the relationship between Lum and Ataru, like, if they ever tied an arc, to be, like, something they're both enthusiastic about. So lastly, we should talk about the characters. And there are a lot of characters, but I think the most important one here to talk about, we've already touched a lot about, is is Elle. Mm-hmm. And there there is a strong rose theme about her. Rose petals drop to the ground when her spaceship lands. Her entire planet is basically architecturally themed off roses. Uh, her planet's name is Bara, which is the Japanese word for rose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's 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 laid on pretty thick. Yeah, her nanny Barbara <laughs> is like an interesting pun on both mm. Baba or Baba as in you know an mm. elderly woman, and then Bara as in rose, and also just the name Barbara. So that's an yeah. interesting multi-layered pun there. And then, of course, like her, you know, spy who like infiltrates uh, Lum's ship is also named, you know, explicitly Rose. And the fun thing with her yeah. is also she sneaks on the ship like hot, hidden in a Tanuki costume, which kind of reflects like, <laughs> oh, Tanuki can, you know, change appearances, disguise themselves, and so can this woman. Mm. She's she's an interesting character as well because she she has a very Western style appearance um like she's got very broad shoulders she's kind of blonde she's tall she's uh quite kind of muscular mm. and she's meant to be the spy which is understandable but she has kind of a more of a kind of almost like a, a western style or even like a kind of a, a little reminiscent of um fuchiko from from lupin as well when she's meant to be this master spy and she dresses up as lum in the bikini is also pretty funny as well and she's got the the plastic hammer that knocks Lum out, but also makes the little conk kind of squeegee sound. <laughs> That's a great uh, Is also, scene. yeah. Now you know the might of the ultrasonic hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and they have those hammers in Japan. Like, it is, like, that is a, um, when you want to playfully bonk someone on the head, you can get those from the 100 yen store, and they are used in a lot of, comedy skits as a way to say i am comedically hurting this person and it makes a, a funny noise it's it's very cartoonish but it's also like a a very a very well-known sight gag uh, in japanese humor and culture as well mm. so of course l is a, a bit of a bit more of a, a complicated character than you would first give her credit for especially because of her collecting hobby and the way that she idealizes her relationship with Ataru without actually knowing Ataru as a person. And even after she kind of gets to know Ataru as a person better, she still wants to go through with the marriage, even if she's just going to lock him away afterwards. Yeah. 
it is also kind of I do like the fact that she calls him honey mm-hmm. as well yeah. in English. I don't think there is a Japanese word for honey, or if it if there is, I don't think that it's used much. I mean, it's just a term of endearment, and it's a contrast to how love yeah. refers to Atari's darling. So again, just yeah. furthering the contrast between Lum and El there. Like, they're very similar, but very different in their approaches to love and a possessiveness of Atari. Yeah, the fact that they've or- she's already given him a nickname without really knowing him on any, you know, like, truly fundamental level is kind of, is a great contrast between her and Lum. Uh, and the way the, the voice actress says, honey, as well, is just a, she always says it in such a sweet and kind of nice way. Uh, no matter what she says uh, from one sentence to the next, she always hits that honey very kind of sweetly when she's talking about Ataru. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, she does really love Ataru, and so she acts pretty kindly towards them generally because, you know, she does mm. care. But, you know, again, she has her own selfish interest in Ataru, like wanting to have him no matter like what he feels. The rest of the characters and cameos in this are a lot of fun as well. Um, the, uh, the the Lum Stormtroopers are along for the ride. They don't really do a whole no. lot except provide some kind of commentary yeah, there. Yeah, they torture but it's good that they're there. at the beginning. They bring back the torturer from the original taxi story, uh, Sado Yama. Like he makes it. There are so many characters from early in the series that make appearance. Sado Yama, the taxi driver, and like even the, I think the pool demon has a cameo at one point. I think he's Kintaro in there for a short while. Is referenced and then shows up the wedding. Uh, there are a lot of like characters that show up for brief moments and cameos. I think one of the most striking things about the film, though, is how it uses Lum's friends because up until this point in the TV series, they'd only shown up. A little bit. Ben 10 and Ayuki. Like, they really only had two episodes apiece to themselves before this movie. But Ben 10 is such a major character, in particular in this movie. Like, she is, like, one of the people who is, like, most proactive in the film. Like, in terms of, like, inspiring Lum or giving Lum the pet talk to go out and, you know, fight for her love and uh, marrying Ataru and then, you know, helping basically stage the the wedding crash that gives Lum the opportunity to, you know, come in, break into the wedding and get Ataru out. So Benton, like, makes a big impression in this movie. This is, the, like, the most she's really done in the anime up until this point. And, like, it, it does, yeah. like, speak towards, like, that dynamic between Lum and Benton and her friends more in Germany that will be more prominent in the series past this point, but up until this point hadn't quite developed as solidly as it is shown here. Mm. I do think, though, that a lot of characters show up in this film that don't really do a whole lot besides show up. Like, Sakura and Cherry, like, kind of have lines here and there, but, you know, they're kind of as well kidnapped to by uh, Eleven Benton for the wedding, but... You know, then they mm. kind of off screen go to a buffet, and then they're not really until the rest of the film until the very end uh, at Lum's wedding. So that's, you know, yeah. they're not 
there's some characters who kind of like just get forgotten about. Like also, uh, you know, after, you know, they discover the refrigerator full of dudes and they prevent Mendo from getting frozen. Like Shinobu, Mendo, the stormtroopers, they're basically out of the film until the last scene too. Like, El just sends them back home. Mm. And yeah, I feel like even though Oyuki and Ron get a scene here and there towards the end where they, you know, help out in staging the chaos at the uh, the capital of where El's wedding is being held, but uh, they also didn't do necessarily that much. And Kurama is like kind of the most flimsy inclusion in the film just because it really is hard to believe that she would ever be friends, friendly even, with Lum's group. And also, I don't think there's ever an implication in the manga that she even knows Ben Tenoyuki or Ron. Well, Ron she does know because of the time where she tried to, you know, marry Ray, But Oyuki yeah. and Benton, I don't think she ever meets in the manga. I think this is the only time they ever interact in the franchise. I think so. I think this is one of the reasons why I thought that if it did end here, like if the series did end and then they ended at this point, that's one of the things that would make it an ending. Um, because you just have all of these characters and cameos and even if your your favourite sub-character didn't have a lot to do or didn't have many lines at least they were in there and they were seen which is just such a such a way of finishing something off sometimes i think but they obviously just wanted to include every character they could from the anime to that point which is uh, i don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing I don't think it hurts the film too much because they don't try and focus on any of the characters. If they tried to focus on any of those characters any more than they already had, then I think it it could kind of start destroying the narrative a bit more. But just the fact that they had like flippant lines like, I'm just only here to make sure Ataru and Lum get married so Ataru will leave me the fuck alone is <laughs> is the only reason she's there. But I think she's just basically there because she's a fan favourite. You know, the fans like um, Kuruma, so put her in. Sure, why not? Mm. And having all of those cameos at the wedding at the end, like, if they didn't have a lot of those characters and just stuck them in the wedding at the end, um, where Ataru runs away from Lum, that would have been enough as well, I think. Uh, You really didn't need some of those other characters in there, but it was nice to, I guess, see them have a cameo and see them have a line. But when you get down to it, it's really Ataru's story. Yeah. Uh, And it's about, you know, because he is the the protagonist, well, not necessarily being the good guy, he is the protagonist of the series. And Elle is an interesting character because she isn't necessarily an, she's only an antagonist to certain other characters such as Lum and only an antagonist towards Ataru at the end, which is also kind of, it's her own fault, but also Ataru's fault as well. Mm. So it, it's a, they all share interesting character dynamics. Um, I suppose lastly, um, we should talk about the, the music and yeah. then our personal opinions. Yeah, there are a lot of musical interludes in this film. Like, a Mm. lot of uses of insert songs. I count, like, four very notable instances. First is that I, I, You, and I is used for the opening credits of the film during the sequence where we're seeing the 
mailman basically give letters to all the residents of Tomobiki. And that is also used as the outro song as well. And the outro is basically mm-hmm. the same as the outro of the series at the time. I I was the basically the ending theme of the series at the time, like it started uh, with episode fifty five, I believe. So at this point, yeah. like it's already it started been used. before the movie, yeah. yeah, which is interesting. I think it was made for the movie. Mm-hmm. It was made with the movie in mind, but they started, I suppose, as kind of a little bit of promotion for the movie. They started using it in the TV show, along with the animated ending, the chibi sequence where Ataru is running away. They use that as well. Yeah. And I have to say, this is probably one of my favorite songs. And there are a a lot of great songs from Urusei Yatsura, but this has to be probably in my top three. I reckon of my favorite songs. I just I, I love the way it starts and the, the drum roll into another kind of calm music, and I love the lyrics. And when you watch the sequence at the beginning and the end, I also love the way that they use it as well. Yeah. I think it's I think this is a very sweet song, and it's kind of very fitting for the first Urusei Yatsura movie. I agree, and I do love that opening sequence a lot. With the pink background colors and the motif of like the letters flipping to show the reactions of everyone to the news of Ataru and Amel getting married is just it's a really fun sequence. Hmm. The other song they use is um, Cosmic Cycler. Yeah, that's used during the sequence where Lum and Benton have taken everyone for. Uh, Lemonatari's wedding, and they're heading towards the Oniboshi ship. I also want to comment on the animation. That scene is super good, where the spaceships, like, yeah. kind of circling each other as they leave orbit and atmosphere, and then just seeing in space, like, Saturn's and a bunch of planets. Like, it looks really nice. Yeah, it, it was a it was a great sequence. Yeah, honestly, when the Oniboshi ship first appears to you, it's super good. Like, it's just, like, a bunch of orange lights like that are kind of merged together in like a crazy like explosion a motion of animation to reveal the invisible spaceship it's like super good like there are really mm. good like uh sequences like that animation sequences but yeah cosmic cycling was of course the previous ending theme before I you and I so that gets a nice usage here very fitting considering mm. yeah they are traversing the stars you know in this scene um, what was the? There was another piece, wasn't there? There was a um, a ballad. Yes, Lum's ballad is like a four minute sequence in which it's just Lum being very pensive and contemplative of her feelings towards Ataru and being very sad about you know the fact that Ataru was taken away and wanting to be with him. And so, yeah, I mean, that's this just a good always time. seemed a little out of place to me. It it kind of stops the plot for four minutes. Yeah. For basically a non sequitur, because it doesn't like move the plot forward. It doesn't tell us anything more that we already knew. Like, Lum was obviously sad that the target was taken away. Mm. It doesn't like have show her gain the resolve to like go and to Wells Planet and rescue Wataru. So it is like kind of like indulgence of like, you know, just spending time kind of this kind of contemplative moody piece for like Lum being. I wonder if. They had like a a set like you have to have this amount of songs in there to be able to sell a soundtrack 
and we have to write a certain amount of original songs for it and they had to kind of come up with Lum's Ballad. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, but... It's worth noting, oh, she definitely was not a fan of these musical sequences. They were not his idea. He was asked to include them by Ochi, and he had no power to reject those demands, and he personally feels they were meaningless sequences. So... Yeah. Look, I do like the animation sequence in the ballad, but mm-hmm. it, it kind of... It doesn't suit the rest of the film in the way that the the beginning, the ending, and Cosmic Cycler do, because there's... Yeah. It just kind of does take things out of sequence mm-hmm. for a little bit. Um, I'm not really, a, personally, a particularly big fan of that song. I don't really like ballads uh, a lot either, so... But that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, it's a fine sequence on its own. It just, in the context of the movie, it doesn't really need to be there. It's just kind mm. of gratuitous. What I do think is a great use of a song, though, is Shadow Tag Waltz, which plays during the sequence of showing Ataru and L's game of tag in the past. And we see the characters interact with those past selves as they are kind of on the pit playground. And that is a really sweet song. And what's also great is that it's mm. sung by Shiori, who also voices Child L. And Shiori is just, you know, a, ah. a Japanese musician. But, like, the favorite thing about that was that they had this song that was sung by the past version of L, you know, to describe, like, the scene that we're showing of the past version of L. So I like that. Mm. And, you know, to Lum's ballad credit, too, that is sung by Fumi Hirano. So, you know, it is Lum ex- talking, expressing her feelings. So Yeah, and that's why I can't dismiss it completely, yeah. is because it is sung by her. So yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of stuck be- between, like, it is sung well, and I... I, and I, I don't want to discount the lyrics or anything, but it does stop the film, and I just I just can't get on board with it. Mm. But the fact that it is Lum's voice actress singing, and the fact that she can sing, kind of gets like a, oh, uh, yeah, okay, from me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the background music is quite good yeah. as well. Um, I quite I quite like a lot of the incidental music. A lot of the musical cues are, are quite well done. They're orchestrated better than the series, as you'd obviously want. Um, but they still contain the flavor. Yeah, absolutely. The music in the film is really good. And it's interesting and great that it turned out so well because uh, the music production of this film also was very troubled. So, oh, citing yes. an interview with one of the composers for this film, Fumitaka Anzai, who was also a music composer for the first one and a half years of the TV series and then worked with the franchise, you know, basically through the 90s and made overall 100 20 to 150 different pieces for UI over the course of, like, the series. Like, he mentioned that, you know, the music production of Only You was very troubling because there were three composers working on the film. Masamichi Amino, Izumi Kobayashi, and himself, Ansai. And so, you know, they Hmm. were basically all working with an equipment known as Fairlight, which is basically kind of an ancestor of, like, a sampler device. It was very expensive back then. And so to get the most use out of it, you know, they were dividing their days into three eight-hour periods in which one of them would work on the Fairlight, another would be in the studio working on an instrument, and the other person would be taking a rest. However, Masamichi Amino went overtime on his hours and so the schedule became a mess <laughs> and so everyone ended up with sleep deprivation and because of this yep. incident Amino was nicknamed as Panic Amino 
It's also worth noting <laughs> that uh, in the TV series, you know, the music was created independently of you know the events of the show. It wasn't created in timing with the animation, but the movie was composed following the script to match the timing of the film and of the animation. Yeah. It is interesting how music production works in Japan and and while it's good that they, you know, there there are always new pieces of technology and new ways of doing things going forward, maybe you know, you trying to utilize that on like something like on something that's already kind of rushed was not the best idea, but I think it still works. Like they they came out with it no matter what the panic was, it really does work for the film. I will say this just on the soundtrack, is that there are two cassettes and CDs you can get for, and LPs, records, uh, for only you. One of them is the actual soundtrack itself with the background music, and one of them is the drama CD. And this, it's interesting because the drama CD is basically just like the audio version of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it is cut down a little bit, uh, and it does have some of the uh, uh, the songs in there, and everything like that. But it is just mostly drama. And the one that most people will want to get is the background version, um, and that is um, that will actually say uh, B M uh, B G M on it. Uh, but they often look similar. Mm-hmm. I want to say. I do have both of them. Uh, I remember listening to the or the the drama, thinking, "Oh, maybe there's like going to be different things in here." I think I ended up falling asleep, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is not a ringing endorsement from me. But also, Japanese is not my first language. But it was. Look, I do have the LP for that, and I will put that LP on there sometimes on the record player, um, just because I love the rich sound that that brings out. And this was released on. On several different formats. Uh, so the film itself was released on VHS. I believe there was a Betamax release. There was a Laserdisc release. And there was even something called a VHD release, which was a Japanese-only format, which was basically almost like a Laserdisc, except it had kind of a massive caddy uh, that contained the disc that you had to kind of put into a machine. Uh, those machines are very rare now to find in working condition. Um, but there were quite a few options to buy this for home video at the time. I reckon that the Laserdisc version of this was really good. Mm. Uh, if not because you can display the artwork <laughs> on like a record size. And of course it was released on DVD later on. And then it's going to be released in the West on Blu-ray finally shortly. And it is on streaming as we mentioned before. So there are there are some good opportunities to watch this. If you're planning on watching this, I don't know how long the, the rights for Urusei Yatsura last when, in terms of the movie, so it's probably a good idea to kind of watch that, mm. you know, sooner rather than later, just in case the, the rights lapse or something like that, because they never tell you how long they have it for, and they might renew it, they might not. Hopefully they'll have it for a little while, though. Since they I just so, licensed yeah. it. But yeah, it's great that they're you hope so. streaming. But it is worth noting that in addition to the sub option, there is a dub option. And we won't spend too long commenting that it can be an episode in itself. But it was interesting that 
CPM basically decided to make a dub of this film in 2003, basically 20 years out of when the film, you know, the film came out. It's the 20th anniversary, basically. And their justification oh. for doing that was interesting. They said they did it in an interview with Stock Cars, and he was the ADR director for the dubs of uh, the Eurocyopter films. Like he said that they mm. did this because they wanted to attract more interest to the retail release of the films that they were doing at the time. But, you know, I get the sense they really wanted to do this on the cheap. Because they went with Squirrel Studios for the dubbing studio. And you know what Squirrel Studios is really known for in terms of what they dub usually? No. Hentai. Okay. They, they may so specialize in hentai. Look, I'm not going to judge, but there are, there are subtleties that perhaps hentai doesn't have over normal. Especially when you are yeah. dubbing. Yeah. Full disclosure, I've never seen the dub of this movie. Okay. Any Urusei Yatsura other than the gag dub done by the BBC, which I've done a thread <laughs> on, on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be a fun episode talking about the dubs of Urusei Yatsura, I think. Like, yeah, so I'm going to have to get a hold of them somehow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Urusei Yatsura yeah. definitely stands out in uh, the types of projects that Swirl Studios you know, worked on. Certainly it isn't Sexorcist or Wicked Lessons or Nighty sh- Night Shift Nurse or My Runner's <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't like that. It, very, it does stand out. It's their only non-pornographic title that they've worked on. Yeah. Uh, and then the actors they cast for the movies, for these characters, uh, so they claim they want to use unknowns to give the dub its own identity because established videos would be distracting, but I think they basically wanted to choose unknowns because those would be cheaper. And especially because oh, the yes. people they cast are people who, if you look up their credits, they aren't in a whole lot of dubbing roles. They, in fact, most of them have not done any dubs outside of your Seatra. Can I ask this question? Yeah. Is it unintentionally funny? Like, is it kind of like they tried their best, but it still ended up kind of very comical? Is it that sort of dub? Or is it uh, is it just kind of not great? It's mediocre to average, I would say. Like, I think that some of the performances okay. aren't bad. I think they're pretty fine. I wouldn't say they're, like, as good as, obviously, the original performances. And I don't think they're... Super distinct enough that they're doing. I think like the actors for Lum and Itaru don't do a terrible job generally. I do think Mendo and Megane are like off in terms of their characterizations, but I will say I think mm. Megane's actor's performance of him was probably the best in terms of like a performance, even though the characterization seemed a little off to me in terms of like his voice and delivery. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's not bad that these things kind of exist out there just as kind of time capsules uh, and places of like anime in the West and, you know, some things. And, and not all English dubs are bad. In fact, I think a lot of English dubs are really good. Yeah. Uh, and on par with the original. But they have to be done professionally. Yeah, and they did not choose professional voice actors. Again, these are mm, okay. mostly first-timers, and most of them did not <laughs> go on to do any voice acting outside of the Yurisiatsu movies. 
Okay, so and I, I really can't comment on this because my only voice acting credit is actually uh, dubbing uh, pornography in camera oh, about 20 years ago. Interesting. So. <laughs> it, it, it was not hentai. I think it was Swedish or Norwegian or something like that. Canberra is a very weird place. Uh, basically, I was paid a few hundred dollars to overdub this thing because I can do, like, I can use my voice. Mm. I, I'm interested in voice acting. I'm not very good at it, but I, I can do a number of accents and a number of like I can pitch my voice differently and make it sound different and basically they shove you in a booth with like someone else like a a girl who can also do the same thing and they give you a bottle of wine each and then you you watch this and then they they give you some vague notes about what's going on and then you have to overdub with that Hmm. yeah so I can't really comment because I, I imagine that like I'm pretty sure it was released Canberra was the only place in Australia at the time where you could sell triple X videos and DVDs and all that sort of stuff. So um, they would just get the cheapest stuff they could find from overseas and you'd have to dub it into some sort of usable English. So mm-hmm. that's, that, that is my slight foray into the world of, um, into the world of quote unquote voice acting. Yeah. My one correction is that uh, Scar Carlson wasn't the ADR director. He was the DVD production manager. The ADR director was oh, okay. the voice of Lum in the film, Shannon Settlemyers. I just wanted to make that correction. Okay. No, that's that's it's good to get to that in there. To kind of go on the subject of casting, though, I did want to touch upon a little bit some of the characters in this movie and their casting, because it is very interesting. So mainly, I wanted to address, obviously, the voice of El Yoshihiko's Sakaki Bara, and she is mm-hmm. very well known for playing a lot of these kind of, of rival characters, like she's Reika and Aim for the Ace. She is Misaki Jirai in Tenchi GXP, and so she's a lot of those type of characters. And also, mm. she has been a lot of other roles in the Ursatsu series. You'll also know her as Atama, the Innkeeper Girl. Ogin, who is mm-hmm, one of yeah. the top, like, girls at the Butsumetsu school and also one of the top big eaters in that one episode. And then the oh, yeah. queen of those aliens whose ship is shaped like a rugby ball. So she's another <laughs> alien princess queen in the series. She certainly had a type. Yeah, she also was Sayoko, uh, who is like that puppeteer girl in... Maison Koku and Sashomaru's mother in Inuyasha the Final Act for other Takahashi oh, adjacent okay. roles. And for another Oshi adjacent role, I think probably one of her best roles is as Shinobu in Pathlabur, who is the first oh, division okay. captain. Yes, that's right. Pathlabur is something I really have to go back and watch again because I, I watched it when it came out, I think in, in the 90s, and I remember being very impressed by it. Adlerber is a great franchise, yeah. Yeah, um, but I haven't really had the time to revisit it since. It's something I really want to go back to. Anyway, we really need to wrap up. Oh, man. So can, I... can you give me your final thoughts? Uh, or is there something else you wanted to do, say quickly? I or? just want to mention Barbara's voice actress, Hisako Kyoda. I mentioned when our stream watching uh, the film that uh, Barbara. Reminded me a lot of Ninja Kaede's master, and there's also a good reason for that. Not just are their designs similar, it's like these old women with red headbands and long white hair. 
<laughs> Kaede was, I mean, Kyoto was both characters. She was both Yatsude oh, okay. and Barbara. So that was interesting casting there, like it. very intentional <laughs> casting. But yeah, in terms of other Takashi adjacent roles, like uh, she, Kyoto mainly plays like a lot of these elderly women characters. And so you'll also hear her as Godai's grandmother in Maizuna Koku and Kaede in Inuyasha. And so I just thought those oh, were interesting okay. casting. Cool. And I also think it's interesting yeah. that uh, Kyoto and Sakakibara, they play another villain team of like a uh, kind of younger, like queen slash master character. And then her elderly uh, second in command slash assistant in another franchise. Uh, do you want to take a guess at who they are and what that franchise is? Uh, no, how about you just tell me? Yeah, so... Otherwise, I'll stretch it out too much. (laughs) So, uh, Sakakibara plays Queen Nihelenia, and uh, Kyoda plays Zirconia in Sailor Moon, the Super S season. Oh, okay. So they... Ah, okay. uh, ...teamed up at the end to play the (laughs) antagonists of the (laughs) Dreams arc of Sailor Moon. So I just thought that was neat. Yeah. That's cool. The Sailor Moon is something that I know about because my wife really likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a certain amount of Stockholm Syndrome, I think, because <laughs> oh, I've no. watched it with her <laughs> a lot. And I just... Look, it's not it's not for me, but I can see why people really like it. Yeah, I love... All right, the, so just to, yeah. like in, in about two minutes, can you tell me your thoughts on this movie, your final thoughts about... And where it, it kind of... What you think about it and where it sits in the pantheon of Urusei Yatsura movies. I really enjoy this movie. It's a lot of fun. Again, it is a crowd pleaser because it contains so many references to the series. It is kind of a fluffier and pretty fun, you know rom-com sci-fi romp that feels akin to something you would expect from a story that Takashi could tell herself. And, yeah, I mean, it it makes a great parallel with the final arc of the series, with the final chapter as a film, because that's also a film about, like, you know, an alien uh, royal kidnapping either mom or Tar to, you know, marry them, and then, of course, that prompts the other one to go out to rescue them teaming up with, you know, all their pals and stuff. So kind of a very similar plot hmm. there. It's a good mirror to the final arc of the film. So I, I think that makes the film yeah. series a nice cyclical kind of watch if you watch them in order. And yeah, I enjoy watching it a lot, but it's not my favorite of the films. In fact, I think of the first five, it is my least favorite. I like it more than six. Oh. Because uh, I think... Yeah. This characterization of Lone Eternity 6 is so off that brings the movie so much down for me. But, you know, I just feel like the other films past this do a lot more interesting things with the characters and with the world of Yurusayatsu in a way that I really appreciate. So, this is my least favorite by default, but it's by no means a bad film. I enjoy it a lot. I think it's a great watch for fans of the series. And I think. It wasn't necessarily the best entryway to Yurusayatsu because it does have so many characters. You're not really given an introduction to it does as you know them but it is a good watch like you know if you have a familiarity with the characters Hmm. my thoughts are like i kind of agree with everything you said just then however my take on it is that this this is not the best urusayatsura film yeah that would definitely in in terms of production in terms of writing in terms of direction that would definitely be number two yeah however this is probably my favorite 
Ursa Yatsura film. Mm. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's probably, it is still well directed. I like the soundtrack. It's, but the most thing that has meaning to me is that it's fun. Yeah. And it, it captures the fun of the series in a way that the other movies don't quite capture. And, you know, you can argue that it's less of a movie because and more of a fan event, and I wouldn't disagree with that. But I think it's my favorite because it is the most fun. It is the one that that gives me the most joy to watch. Mm. And you know, I, I it is something I can sit through over and over and over and over again, and and still have fun. And it doesn't matter, you know, if I see it with subtitles on or off, or if I'm watching it on Laserdisc or VHS. It's just a it's just a jolly romp. Yeah. And we'll we'll discuss the films as we go through them more. It'll be very interesting for me. And I used to be a film student and, um, you know, done a, a little bit of work in the industry um, as we go into some of the more esoteric films like three and four and and discuss kind of what, what they have going on for them as well. But we really need to wrap up. So uh, I am Andrew A.C. Yoshimura for Lum Squad. You can find me at prodtally on Twitter. If you're interested in the uh, the BBC gag dub I mentioned earlier, that is my pinned tweet uh, at the moment, which gives a, an interesting history, um, sub-history of Rusei Yatsura in the West, particularly in the early 2000s for the BBC. Uh, and I also do another podcast called uh, Game Life Balance Australia. Uh, we have recorded another episode. It's going to go up soon, I think. Uh, and it goes off the rails, <laughs> which is fun. Awesome. And how about yourself? Oh, you can find me at Lumbermiyasha on Twitter, Lumbermiyasha on a variety of places, including Animation Revelation and Analyst, wherever there's a Lumbermiyasha, that's you can find me. You can read my manga reviews on all-comer.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews coming out, so definitely look forward to more on there. That's also where you can find the podcast I do, like Manga Mavericks, a show where we discuss manga as both a medium and as an industry. And we've got a lot of great episodes planned out this summer, including a lot of focus on LGBTQ manga. So look forward to that coming up. And you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks. And we're also pretty much on every podcast platform you can think of, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're on it. That podcast feed also will include manga and movies. So if you like our discussion of anime movies like uh, our discussion only you hear you can look forward to that podcast for discussion of the latest and greatest anime movies and of course as for Lum Squad you can find us at Lum underscore Squad on Twitter and we are also pretty much every podcast platform you can think of including our podcast Spotify, Stitcher you name it we're on it and of course we have a YouTube channel YouTube slash so Lum Squad and if you want to send your feedback to us in terms of what you enjoy about the show, like what your thoughts on Only You Are and the films are, you can send your thoughts and suggestions our way to our email, lumsquadpod at gmail.com. We'd like to get feedback and hear your guys' suggestions and yeah, have some cool interactions with y'all. And of course, if you yeah, want to support the show and listen to select episodes early when they're done ahead of their public release, you can subscribe to the Manga Mavericks Patreon, patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where we often post episodes up early, oftentimes much ahead in advance, so you can get an early sneak peek listening to them if you subscribe to uh, $2 tier for early access. And at our father here, we also offer monthly bonus pods, which includes right now our 
retrospective of Saints Day, where my manga arts co-host Colton and our good friend Doctor are going through the Saints Day manga two lines at a time. So if you want more thoughts on classic 80s manga series, uh, definitely give that a ch- check out, because uh, they're nearing the end of the series, and they've got some interesting thoughts. And Very nice. that basically does it for this episode of Lum Squad, talking about your scouts only you, and look forward to our next one where we'll either revisit the manga or go ahead and enter Beautiful Dreamer. But until then, sayonara, darlings. (laughs) Bye-bye.